Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, um, your kindness, your grace, your mercy uh, in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, for bringing us to you and uh, to this local body together, Lord, where we can encourage one another, sharpen one another. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word this morning and to fellowship with one another. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would guide us, that you would give us great wisdom as we encounter people um, with different beliefs uh, and when it's Wrong beliefs, Lord, that as, uh, as uh, Chance was even talking about today, that we would approach with gentleness, but that we would also um, come with the truth, and uh, Lord, that you would use that. So we thank you for this time, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I gave kind of a compacted uh, summary at the top of the outline of what we'd gone through uh, before, uh, so here's where we are, just to give you the big picture. We're talking about, talking through some of these doctrines that we don't agree with, and uh, well, the first one we covered was God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Uh, so we went through uh, in the scriptures where it shows that that is not God's will for every believer to always be healthy and wealthy. Uh, we talked about seed faith and how that concept is erroneous as well. And then we talked about uh, the idea that we can do miracles like Jesus and the apostles did. And we argued that uh, those kinds of gifts were unique to certain times where, where God gave them. And in the case of the New Testament, it was for the foundation of the church. And they have since passed. They're no longer in operation today. Um, and then today, that brings us to the fourth thing. And uh, I should have actually asked you to make a correction because I called it spirit baptism. We do believe in spirit baptism. So it shouldn't say that that's something we don't believe in. But we don't believe in the spirit baptism as a second blessing as separate from salvation. So please correct that on your paper. I'm not saying we don't believe in spirit baptism, but the way that, uh, that the Charismatic and Pentecostals te- teach spirit baptism, we don't agree with that. So their view of spirit baptism as something that happens after salvation, okay, like a separate experience after salvation. That's what we're really talking about. So I wrote there, oh, second blessing. That's what we're really going to address. The idea that you become saved at one point in your life But then after that, you're seeking this important spirit baptism, which will result in more, much more power for ministry and will often result in the speaking of tongues. That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, so we're going to look at number one, that we don't agree that it's that uh, speaking of tongues is ongoing today for the uh, for the same reason we didn't believe in those other gifts. Uh, But then also the idea of a spirit baptism happening after salvation. Okay, so we're going to, that's basically today. We're going to look at those two issues. Let's start with spirit baptism. Okay, so the, the Pentecostal or charismatic view sees baptism with the spirit as distinct from the new birth or regeneration. So it's sometimes called the second blessing. In other words, you become saved at one point in your life, but then after that, you're looking for this spirit baptism to take place where you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit for ministry. Um, practically speaking, what this ends up doing is it, it ends up dividing believers into two categories. So you kind of have, well, these people got saved and they're believers, but then you have the better, the, the higher level. These are the believers who've received the, the spirit baptism and they've been empowered. So it actually ends up dividing the church into different levels of believers, which is, which is not a good thing. Um, The cessationists, on the other hand, contend that baptism in the spirit occurs at salvation, and so there is no second blessing. 
So I want to go through this with you uh, from the scriptures. So let's look to the word of God. Wayne Grudem, who I mentioned last week, again, Wayne Grudem is a uh, pretty respected theologian, but he is charismatic. He is, he is uh, open to the continuation of the gifts, so it's especially good sometimes to be able to look at what he teaches, because I would say he's one of the more conservative of the people that believe in those things. Uh, he points out that there are only seven passages in the New Testament in which we read of baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. Or some, uh, some versions will translate it by, but it's probably with is probably what you'll see in your Bibles. So there's seven passages that talk about baptism with the Spirit. Okay, so let's look through the first five. The first five are anticipating a coming or a promised baptism. And uh, the, the first bunch are going to be really recounting the same thing when John, is, John the Baptist is doing uh, baptisms and he's pointing to Jesus coming, right? And he says Jesus is going to come. So let's look at Matthew 3.11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so there's one of our passages. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, and then we can look in the other gospel accounts, Mark 1, and you'll see that these are similar. But that's going to be, these are going to encompass four of the seven. Mark 1, 8. Again, starting in 7, John says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he doesn't mention the fire here, but he says Holy Spirit. And then Luke 3. Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then uh, one more, John, John's account, John 1, 32. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So there again, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so these are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts of the same event. And it says that Jesus is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And in two of the accounts, he actually says, end with fire. Okay, so the first thing I want to note and point out here is that where it does say the Holy Spirit and fire, these are not referring to two different baptisms for the believer. Okay, sometimes that's taught in charismatic circles. Not always, but sometimes they teach, yeah, there's going to be the first baptism, and then there's the baptism with fire, and they try to link that to Acts 2 and say, well, that's the second baptism. You're going to receive a baptism with fire. The problem is, when you read the context of those passages, go, if you go back to Mark, Matthew 3, uh, fire is not a good thing. You don't want the baptism with fire. He's talking about judgment. So it's not talking about two baptisms for believers. It's talking about a baptism for believers and a baptism for unbelievers. Uh, so Matthew 3.11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's that fire? Keep reading. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that's what he's talking about in the context. The fire there is talking about judgment. It's talking about an unbeliever. So this is not talking about two, two baptisms that believers are going to receive. Okay? Um, that's not what you want. You do not want the baptism of fire. <clears throat> Okay, but that still doesn't, uh, we still need to address, then what, let's look at the part about baptism with the Spirit. Okay, what's baptism in the Spirit or with the Spirit? Uh, in the Greek, the phrase is en pneumati hagio, in the Spirit holy, in the Spirit with the Holy Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit. And what this is referring to in each of those passages is something that was going to happen soon at Pentecost. Uh, if you turn to Acts 1, Jesus talks about this again. And he says what's going to happen. So it's still in the future, as it was when John was talking about it. Acts 1, we could start in verse 4. 4 to 8 in Acts 1. It says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So this is the risen Christ. Uh, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is where the charismatics would say, see, you're going to get the second blessing and you're going to have power for ministry. They're taking it from this verse. Okay, and, and Jesus is indeed telling the disciples, uh, telling the apostles here that, that they will receive uh, power from the Holy Spirit in, in the future. In a, in, it says not many days from now. And then that happens in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so this is, this is the actual event. That this is what was being promised. This is what was pointed to. Acts 2, <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, this is verse 1. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, <clears throat> and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. So we could call this the beginning of the church, uh, but, but I would argue we shouldn't see Pentecost in isolation, but that this was rather the first of four important events that expanded the church and that showed that in the church there was no distinction between Jew, Gentile, and Samaritan. Okay, more on that in a moment. 
Uh, but I want to go to one more passage that speaks of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's in 1 Corinthians 12. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. <clears throat> it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Pentecostals will argue that this in First Corinthians twelve thirteen is an entirely different event. That this isn't talking about the same thing. They make a distinction between this and what we were reading about before. And what they will argue is that the Spirit is baptizing here and Jesus is baptizing in the other verses. That's the argument they make. And they have to because if this is, if this is talking about Spirit baptism, then Paul is saying that Spirit baptism occurs when you become part of the body. And when do you become part of the body of Christ? Somebody? Anybody? At salvation, right? So if you become, you become a believer, you become part of the body of Christ when you get saved, right? So this passage is saying that that's when you're baptized into the Spirit. You're baptized with the Spirit when you become that part of that one body. In fact, you are baptized into the body. So if that is talking about the same thing, it's saying, no, that happens at salvation. Okay, so they make a distinction between the two, um, to say that it doesn't happen at conversion. Oh, that's something different. That was Jesus baptizing. This is talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, but as Grudem notes, and remember, he's a charismatic theologian, Grudem notes a distinction between those passages in 1 Corinthians 12 does not, in fact, hold up. He says the following. Their claim cannot be supported by an examination of the Greek text, for there the expression is almost identical to the expressions we have seen in the other six verses. Paul says, and then he gives it in the Greek, in one spirit we were baptized. Apart from one small difference, he refers to one spirit rather than the Holy Spirit, all the other elements are the same. The verb is baptizo, and the prepositional phrase contains the same words, n plus the dative noun pneumati. If we translate the same Greek expression, baptized in the Holy Spirit, in the other six passages where we find it, then it seems only proper that we translate it the same way in the seventh occurrence. And no matter how we translate it, it seems hard to deny that the original readers would have seen this phrase as referring to the same thing as the other six verses. And then he, he concludes, Baptism in the Holy Spirit, therefore, must refer to the activity of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the Christian life when he gives us new spiritual life and cleanses us and gives us a clear break with the power, of love of, power and love of sin. But this means that it cannot refer to an experience after conversion as the Pentecostal interpretation would have it. So even Grudem disagrees and he points out that that's not really a tenable argument. Okay, so why do the Pentecostals argue this? Against this, the Pentecostals point to certain passages and acts that describe people who were believers but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. One of the principles of Bible interpretation, though, is to favor the teaching passages over the historical descriptive passages when determining our theology. Okay, so Acts is describing events, not necessarily explaining them. But 1 Corinthians is going to be more of a teaching letter and explaining. Okay, so are there such passages? Are there passages in the scripture? Yes, like Acts 2, you had believers present, you had the apostles present, 
But they hadn't received this baptism. They hadn't received the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet. And that's why we would mark that as the beginning of the church. Yes? Would that be similar to like Abraham getting saved or, or um, people in the Old Testament? Those named in, in the, the Hebrews 10, the Hall of Fame. Of the in what way do you mean is it similar? They they were saved they were believers, like King David, for example. Yep. But they didn't have that permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, which Jeremiah prophesied when they would come. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. Yeah. So people had been saved, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. In the Old Testament, they're saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon people. He enables them to do things. We had Oholiab and others who were building the tabernacle stuff and, and the kings. And so God would come upon people and enable them. The Holy Spirit would enable them to do certain things, to serve God. Um, but... He wasn't permanently indwelling them as he was after Pentecost. And uh, well, the one example is King Saul. King Saul, the Holy Spirit departed from King Saul. So he had the Holy Spirit upon him, working w- through him as king. And then God withdrew the Holy Spirit away from him. And in fact, sent a spirit that tormented him, an evil spirit. So he did not have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit left him. And King David prayed uh, for God not to take away his Holy Spirit from him after David's sin, uh, like it happened with Saul. So we see that, it, that there wasn't a permanent indwelling by the Holy Spirit um, at that point. Okay? That started to happen in Acts 2, which is why we call it the beginning of the church. But that wasn't the only, only occurrence that was like that. So, here, so there, were un- there were some events where believers in the New Testament... They were believers and they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And then they received the Holy Spirit. As the church was being established, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 12, the Jews, the Greeks, slaves and free, all of them were being baptized into one body. As he wrote, that happens at salvation. And that's what was happening with the Corinthians. That's what's happening today. It's always at salvation. You become part of the body of Christ. You receive the baptism with the Spirit. If you think about it, the experience of the first people to be permanently indwelt would have to be unique, right? If, if, there, if people were saved before and they did not have a permanent indwelling of the Spirit, and now here comes the permanent indwelling of the Spirit, well, they were saved before that happened. So there had to be this, this unique experience where they received the Holy Spirit. So it had to be a unique experience, if you think about it, because it's the first time that that's happening, It would have to be unique. That doesn't mean that's how it's always going to be after that. Uh, So it's not a surprise that it was two steps at first. They were saved, and then now after, after Christ is resurrected and he ascends, the Holy Spirit is sent. It had to be in two steps that way. But if someone got saved after that, then they received the Holy Spirit at salvation. Um, Another reason this happened, this happened because of great animosity between the different people groups like Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans. There was a danger that one of these groups might deny the brotherhood of the other or consider them as somehow inferior. In particular, the Jews who had something against the Samaritans or the Gentiles and whatnot, they would have trouble accepting them as equal in the church. Oh, you're claiming the Gentiles got saved and that they, they're receiving the same blessings, right? That they're, that they're in the church. And so this was used. God was showing that all these different groups 
were part indeed of the church, part of the same body. So if you look at where these things happened, Acts 2 was one. It started with the Jews in Acts 2, but it continued with similar events with other people groups where God showed that these other groups were just as much a part of the church as the Jews. Um, So if you turn to Acts 8, you'll see something similar to what happened in Pentecost at Acts 2. Acts 8, and this is for the Samaritans. Acts 8, starting in verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here were Samaritans who had received the word, who had gotten saved, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them yet. And in fact, basically what has to happen is apostles are sent to pray over them, and then the apostles witness this happening. Okay, that's very important, that the apostles witness this happening. So they, they, so they know and they can, they can vouch that, hey, this is from God. The Samaritans are in the body just like us. In Acts 10, the same thing happens with Gentiles. Uh, You remember Acts 10, Peter and Cornelius. Uh, God gives Peter this vision to not call anything unclean that God doesn't. um, It's a picture about food, but then he immediately sends Peter to bring the gospel to these Gentiles. And they get saved. And so the message God is giving is about not considering them unclean and considering them uh, not to be part of the church. So Peter is actually willing to go in, go into their place and bring them the gospel, and they get saved. So Acts 10, uh, 44, he brings the gospel, and then it says, uh, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So they had the same thing. Okay, so again, Peter and the others are coming and they're witnessing this happen with the Gentiles. And they're seeing the Gentiles are part of the same body. They're receiving the same Holy Spirit as the Jews. And then one more, Old Covenant believers, Acts 19. So this would be like Jerry was just talking about, right? These believers from before. These were actually uh, John, John uh, the Baptist's followers. Uh, Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. And Peter said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people, and then then, uh, so on. Now jump to verse 6. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So again, he's witnessed to see this, that they're in. So you see, this happened with the Jews. Similarly, it happened with the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and Old Testament believers, John's followers. 
Okay, and well, maybe, maybe you're not sure there's a connection. Well, look at how Peter explains this. So Peter is called to explain what happened in Acts 10, and we see that in Acts 11. Okay, he's called to report, like, what, what are you doing going in with these unclean people? <laughs> Why are you going to them and going into their place? Jews aren't going to do that. They're not supposed to go into Gentiles' places. It's unclean. Why would you do that, Peter? And he explains to them in Acts 11 what was happening. So let's, uh, let's start on verse 13. Acts 11, verse 13. Peter's reporting to the church. Uh, he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. So he's vouching for this. The Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles, just like it did on us at the beginning. That's talking about Pentecost, Acts 2, the Jews, when they received the Spirit. So the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit just like we did, is what he's saying. And see, that's why it's important he was a witness to that. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's confirming that this is the baptism with the Holy Spirit that was being talked about. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the point here is that Peter was being questioned or criticized by the Jews, the circumcision party, as it's called there, for associating with Gentiles. So he explains it to them and he says, you know, this is what was going on. They had a similar experience to to what we did at Pentecost and God was showing that no distinction should be made. Uh, The miracles attested to the fact that these actions were from God so they could not be denied and therefore the objectors fell silent. And then Peter connected these events to the promised baptism with the Spirit. So he's saying that that was the baptism with the Spirit, uh, pointing back to Acts 2. Uh, Peter again talks about this event in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council some years later. So if you turn to Acts 15... It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. See, so God was bearing witness to that. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So he's saying the same thing again, pointing back to that event from Acts 10. Uh, Wayne Grudem writes here, uh, specifically, he's talking about the Samaritans' experience in Acts 8, uh, but this would apply also for the others. Uh, Grudem writes this, God, in his providence, sovereignly waited to give the new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans directly through the hands of the apostles so that it might be evident to the highest leadership in the Jerusalem church that the Samaritans were not second-class citizens but full members of the church. This was important because of the historical animosity between Jews and Samaritans. So what he did, so God gave this testimony so that you didn't have a situation where the Jews received the Holy Spirit and, and were in the church and then somebody else claimed it. And that the, the, the Jews could have denied it, right? Or somebody could have said it, and then they're like, well, 
I don't believe you. I don't believe God would do that. How do we know you're really part of the church? Well, he made it clear. That's what he did. By doing this at each of these people groups, he made it clear. Hey, these people are just as much a part of the body as the others. So they're not second-class citizens of the church. They're receiving the same spirit, the same salvation, worshiping the same God, right? So they're, they're equal. So there's no, no problem between them, right? They shouldn't be treating them as second-class And so it's interesting then that what God was doing there is he's actually preventing what's happening in the Pentecostal churches right now when they do this thing that creates the two levels of Christian, where you have the Christian who got saved but hasn't been baptized with the Spirit, and you have the ones who have. When you have the one who can't speak in tongues and the ones who do, and you end up with like two tiers of Christians. And that's exactly what God was trying to make, was making sure doesn't happen, right? He made sure that wasn't happening in the early church by proving that each of these groups was part of the same body. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew summarized, Holy Spirit baptism is a positional act taking place in the life of every Christian concurrently with regeneration. In other words, at the same time as we're saved. The texts in Acts that refer to a post-conversion or after-salvation baptism of the Spirit are associated with the transitional nature of the period. So it was a special thing as, we were, as the church was, was starting, as we were going into the new covenant. First uh, Corinthians 12, 13 records the normative doctrine of spirit baptism, stating that it results in a new position in the body of Christ for all Christians at the moment of faith in Christ. So in other words, the, all those other ones were special, unique examples at the very beginning of the church where they first received the Holy Spirit. But then after that, that's what 1 Corinthians 12 is describing. This is the norm. Not Acts 2. Those are special. Those aren't the norm for the church. They were special events accompanied with signs to show that the gospel was for all nations. And it happened at the beginning just to unify the church. Um, Okay, any questions on that? I'll give you another reason they're not normative. They can't be normative because Paul writes in Romans, turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, 9, and again, we take the teaching passages, take our theology from the teaching passages more than from a description, because the descriptions and acts aren't teaching us why it was happening. It's a description of what happened. But Romans and 1 Corinthians are what they'd call didactic or teaching passages in these letters. Um, So Romans 8, 9 says, Paul writing here, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. Okay, so there it is. So if you don't have the spirit, what? You're not saved. Okay, so let's put that together with the the second blessing claim. The second blessing claim is you get saved and you have the spirit. But you need the second blessing, right? So, so there, but if you go to Acts, if you go to Acts, that can't be the norm now, right? Because the people in Acts were saved and then they received the Spirit afterwards. But that can't be the norm for the church because he says right here. He doesn't say, if, you're, if, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, it's because he hasn't given you the Spirit yet and that's still to come. No, everyone who's a believer has the Spirit. We all have the indwelling Holy Spirit if we're actually saved. It's not something you would get later. So we, so we can't claim that Acts 2 and those other passages are normative for the church. It can't be. 
Okay, that was a special, unique uh, situation uh, as the church began. But what Paul writes here in Romans 8, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, that's the norm. That's how it goes uh, from then on. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew write that spirit baptism occurs when Jesus Christ, Lord of his church, from Pentecost on, by the Spirit, places Christians into his body, the church, at the moment a person puts faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. By Christ doing so, Christians are immersed into and participate in the universal body of Christ. So there's no second baptism or blessing for the believer. We're indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit when we're saved. Also, we're indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit, not by part of him. So there's also sometimes people think, well, you know, um, I need more of the Holy Spirit. More of the Holy Spirit. He needs, send more, he needs to send more of the Spirit. Well, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You don't need more of him. You have him. There isn't that you have a little bit of him and you know, he has a little bit more. Because again, what are you going to do? You're starting to divide up Christians and say, oh, well, this person has more than that person. And so we got these, you know, who, these tiers of, of Christians, super Christians and mediocre Christians and lame Christians. And it's all about how much spirit you have. We all have the spirit, right? We all have the spirit in us. Now, it's true he may be working more through some of us, but that's not because we're lacking the spirit. That's because we're lacking in our walk. We're lacking in our obedience, right? We're not being filled with the spirit would be the term in the scripture. If you're filled with the spirit, right, then you're letting him lead you. You're, you're filled with the word. You're following the spirit. Then he's going to use you more than someone who's not. So you can kind of get in the way, right? You can get in the way, but everybody who's a believer has the Holy Spirit. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. You just need to submit and follow him and let him lead you more. Uh, Of the beginning, uh, Pentecost and similar experiences, here's again what Grudem writes. So we'll kind of end on the spirit baptism with this summary from Grudem. They received this remarkable new empowering from the Holy Spirit because they were living at the time of the transition between the old covenant work of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. So it was a transition time. Though it was a second experience of the Holy Spirit coming as it did long after their conversion, it is not to be taken as a pattern for us. For we are not living at a time of transition in the work of the Holy Spirit. We today do not first become believers with a weaker old covenant work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and wait until some later time to receive a new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we are in the same position as those who became Christians in the church at Corinth. At the moment when we become Christians, we are each in one spirit baptized into one body. In conclusion, the disciples certainly did experience a baptism in the Holy Spirit after conversion on the day of Pentecost. So we would agree with that. But this happened because they were living at a unique point in history, and this event in their lives is therefore not a pattern that we are to seek to imitate. So therefore, we conclude that baptism in the Spirit occurs at salvation for believers. That's the norm in the church. Those were unique instances in the past, at the beginning of the church, that God did that way for a special reason. And again, just the fact that these people were believers and hadn't received the permanent indwelling meant it had to be a unique experience. There had to be a beginning. So that's what happened. And it was with those different groups of people. All right. Yeah. Jerry, did you have a hand up? So we can, can we say then that Jesus Christ ushered in and started the transition between the Old Testament form of worship and then it would end it about 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, again, the New Testament form of worship. 
where his emphasis was greater on faith versus symbols. Well, the new covenant began, right? Yeah. yeah. So the new covenant, um, blessing of having the spirit in you. Yeah. So, we, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a transition time, right? That, and that's why we call that the beginning of the church. So really, Pentecost was the first one, so we usually call that the beginning, but then there were the other three similar events, right? And they were all, all the beginning events of the church. All right, so what about tongues? Um, so let's, let's spend a little bit of time, the rest of the time, on tongues. Uh, Pentecostals also teach that tongues should accompany the baptism by the Spirit, pointing to Acts 2, and some of the other similar events mentioned tongues. Some of them didn't. But by Peter's comparison, it sounds like he's saying it was really this, the same thing. So presumably tongues were happening at all of those events. Uh, we've already established that it was not normative, so we can't really expect tongues to be normative either. Uh, we could really probably leave it at that, because again, I would argue against tongues based on sign gifts, as we argued last week, that there, there wasn't a need any longer. But we'll talk a little bit more through that. Um, some, just some notes on tongues. Okay, so if you're not sure, do you think maybe, okay, maybe you agree there's not a second baptism of the Spirit. Maybe you agree, based on what we just looked at, that that happens at conversion, but then maybe you think, should people be speaking tongues at conversion? Is that normative, right? Is that something we should expect? So maybe not a second blessing, but maybe you think that should happen at the first, the first uh, baptism, right? Um, and so I just want to note a couple things about that, uh, about that. They're usually, they're always teaching with a second, but whatever your question is on it, let's note a couple things about tongues. Uh, first, we should not expect every believer to speak in tongues, for sure. So if you were to believe that tongues were still going on, this idea that every believer should speak in tongues is not correct. It's not biblical. So go to 1 Corinthians 12. And I know that there are people in like charismatic churches who, who, who are there and, and they feel terrible because everybody else is speaking in tongues and they can't speak in tongues and why can't they speak in tongues? And again, they feel like second class believers because they can't do this thing. But scripture says not everybody should be speaking in tongues. So why, you know, why is that an expectation? 1 Corinthians 12, 7. This is talking about spiritual gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what, what's the picture you get out of that statement? What's, what's Paul saying? He's saying diversity of gifts, right? He's saying God gives gifts. You had a... Oh. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's pinpointing the fact that you can't manipulate the Spirit to make somebody do a gift like they do uh, in those circles. So try to manipulate the baptism of the Holy Spirit by praying over people Yeah. 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 And he's saying that he doesn't give everybody the same gifts, right? He gives some people this and some that. So it's not a picture that everybody. I mean, just like not everybody has has the gift of the, these other gifts that he's mentioning. Tongues is just among them. Not everybody's going to have the gift of tongues. 
Okay. Um, if, if that's not clear enough, go a little farther in the chapter. You might say, well, he doesn't, just, he doesn't actually say that exactly. So we're saying it's implied. But how about 1 Corinthians 12, 28? And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. By the way, is everybody an apostle? Is everybody a prophet? Right? Everybody a teacher? No. So these are already things that not everybody is. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? The answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? So it's rhetorical questions. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, 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 no. That's his whole point. Not everyone speaks with tongues. It's not supposed to be that. So even when the tongue gift was in operation in the church, it wasn't for everyone. It was only certain people. Okay, so anybody who would tell you that every believer should speak in tongues, it's not, it's not scriptural. Yeah. When it goes on and says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, is the higher gifts referring to those, those works of the Spirit, or is it referring to something else? Well, all of these gifts, wait, what do you mean works of the Spirit? Because all the gifts are from the Holy Spirit. I mean, yeah, is it referring to the gifts of healing, the gifts of tongue, you know, prophecy, things like that, or is it I think he's going on to chapter 13 and talking about those. So he's talking about tongues, prophecy, knowledge. The ones he addresses in 13 and then says, but, but without love, they're useless. So he's saying, well, you know, these are, but they don't mean, they're still useless without love. So I, I think he's, he's talking about those because then he, he transitions into talking about those. Um, one other note, um, I think Justin Peters mentions this. Another interesting thing on, on um, tongues is that usually they try to teach you how to do that. So anyway, he was making the observation that if it's a work of the Spirit, do you have to be taught how to do it? So like a lot of these churches, they'll have a class. You don't know how to speak on tongues. And I watched some of this on, on, on this video. And they're like, first you start by babbling like a baby. And start making these sounds, and they like teach you how to do this gibberish talk. And, and his point was, well, is that how the Holy Spirit works? When the Holy Spirit gives you a gift that you're to use, do people have to teach you how to do that? It's like, well, what you do is you, you I mean, you can get better at some things, I suppose, like teaching and such. But, but you have these gifts that the Spirit empowers you with, and yet you don't know how to do it, and you can't do it at all until a person shows you how to do it. It's like, well, when people are prophesying, they can prophesy. When people can interpret, right? So why do you have to be taught how to do this babbling gibberish if it's a work of the Spirit? So that's just, a, just an interesting question he brought up. And he showed where they were actually like on TV trying to teach people to do that. It was, it was kind of weird. <laughs> Babble like babies. Okay. Um, second, second point. So we should not expect every believer to speak in tongues. So even if you do believe in tongues, you should not expect that everybody should be speaking in tongues. Uh, number two. The Bible says that tongues would or will cease. Okay, now we do have to acknowledge it doesn't specifically say when. So I'm not saying that, that this is a slam dunk that I can tell you, well, see, see. But the point is that they are, they are or were to end at some point. And so when is that? And, and I believe it fits with what we were talking about with the uh, foundation of the church, that that's when. Especially since the tongues here were, were evidence of the beginning of the church and that these groups should be in the church. There's no need for that any longer. But regardless, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, it does say they will end. 
Uh, love never ends, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was like a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Uh, So it does say they are going to cease. As for tongues, they will cease. Okay, he mentions prophecies, tongues, and knowledge and says that they will cease. And um, we probably, we don't have time to get too much into into a word study here. Uh, But you could go in and there's some interesting things to note about the language. For example, he uses the same verbs for uh, prophecies and knowledge. So in the ESV, it says they will pass away. Both of them say that. That is the same verb in the Greek, but it's a different verb for the tongues that says they will cease. So the English captures that those are different. Um, a couple notes on that. Um, for, the, for the pass, will pass away is uh, future passive. And so it really, it could be something like uh, will be done away with will pass away, will be done away with, but it's, it's passive, so that means that someone's making that happen. Someone's doing that to them. And so the implication is God. God will do away with prophecy and knowledge when the perfect comes. And there's a whole lot of debate about what the perfect is. Um, and then, but what about the, the tongues that will cease? That's a different word. And that's, that's a middle, which usually means um, it's going to kind of go away on its own. It's going gonna, it's gonna to pass it's going to just kind of like uh, stop on its own it's going to end by itself that's kind of what the word means again it doesn't specify when exactly so i can't tell you that that says oh yeah here it is you know i want to be honest about that but it does say they will end so certainly you should have in mind that whenever the tongues were going they were going to end at some point or if they haven't they will henry Yeah. And the apostles were still alive. Um, would it be safe to say that these gifts ceased after the apostles were home with the Lord and the canons were closed? Because if someone received a revelation of uh, speaking in another language, yeah. so, wouldn't that be an additional revelation of God to be added on to? You know what I mean? Presumably. I mean, I suppose they could argue. I mean, you don't even know because in the charismatic churches, they're usually not interpreting it. So you don't even know what's being said. But I suppose someone could argue that they're speaking the gospel or they're speaking something that is in, in the scripture. I suppose somebody could argue that. But, but to what you said, that's exactly what, what I believe. And that's what I've been arguing, that it is with the apostles that those things passed. And you look at the early church. You look at the early church fathers after the apostles and such, and this is another thing Justin Peters t- uh, talks about if you want to look at that video. Um, he talks about through church history, there's n- that all the early church fathers after the apostles are talking about how all these gifts are done. So they're not seeing it around them. And then the, the, there's a few like kind of fringe groups where it pops up through history that people are claiming to have these things, prophecy and tongues. But, but mostly the huge thing happens in, I think, in 1906, where they have this big tongue-speaking thing, and it's like the birth of the Pentecostal movement. 
1906, this is where it's suddenly like his back. <laughs> and all the time before that, where was it? A few cases with these fringe groups. But again, remember, they're arguing that this has been going on forever. Their whole argument is it's, it's the norm for the church. Well, it isn't because it wasn't going on for all those years before 1900. And now suddenly somebody comes along in 1900 and claims this is going on. So, um, so therefore, if the canons of both and the apostles have ceased and it is historically That's a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> yes, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, Kelly. Can you talk a little bit more about what it means when it says, you know, what is the concept there of Oh, I didn't look at that too much. That's prob. that's... Uh, that's probably, uh, I mean, that must be some kind of gift whereby the Spirit's providing understanding, knowledge of, of mysteries that are going on. I don't know t- too much about that one. Um, yeah, the gift of knowledge. Yeah, it has to, I mean, obviously it has to be something that, that not everybody has. So, yeah, I'd have to look at that more. I'm not, I think it... My understanding is it has to do with just things being revealed by the Spirit to some people. That's, that's, but I haven't looked at that too much. Well, it, it occurred to me when you were talking about um, the, the uh, apostles and their special utilization of um, speaking in tongues and um, miracles and that kind of thing, that uh, perhaps it was the knowledge imparted by Christ them directly, which nobody else had. They were the only ones who were given direct knowledge through the human Christ on earth or John after his conversion. Interesting. So you'd be talking about like Jesus' teaching that they yeah. that they went through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't know if we could be I don't want to venture too much. I don't know if we could be dogmatic unless there's another passage that explains what that exactly means. So we'd have to like look up where else would use that same word and refer to that. Um, what, yeah. Well, uh, to, to any person who had direct revelation to Jesus Christ, these were chosen apostles. They were not given to the church. Yeah. This knowledge it's referring here um, was that incident in uh, Acts where one of the guys was trying to prevent uh, uh, the Apostle Paul to go to Rome and he received a, a vision or knowledge about what would be like and he gave a, a par- uh, an illustration fashion Paul yeah. with a belt I, I don't know if you know that passage it could be I mean it could be prof- that could be considered prophecy as well so uh, yeah so I don't know if there would be what you know that could be but that would also could be considered prophecy yeah all right, uh, next uh, thing. Let me see. Yeah, I think we're done on that one. So number three, tongues were real existing languages. Okay, that's another. Um, this is a big source of debate. Uh, it is clear if you read in Acts 2 that they're real languages, right? You read Acts 2 and they're actually listed 
So Acts 2, starting in verse 9, actually talks about who these peoples are, and it's their languages. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, all of those. So they're listing people, and actually the word, tongue, actually that's what it means. I was reading some arguments that people are like, it shouldn't even be translated tongues, uh, because that word literally means your tongue, or it means a language. So there's, there's a lot of people who argue that that's, that's kind of, it, shouldn't even, it should just say languages. It shouldn't say tongues, but, uh, but, it, but we have that in there. But these are languages. These people are hearing in their languages. Uh, verse 8, how is it that we hear in our, own, in our native language? And then the, the peoples, the languages are listed. So in Acts 2, there are actual languages, right? They were speaking in other tongues or languages, verse 3 says, and the crowd came together hearing and understanding in their own languages. And then those languages are identified. And then since Peter describes the other occasions of spirit baptism with the Gentiles, Samaritans, and Old Testament saints as being similar, we can thus conclude that in each of those instances, the tongues were most, they were most likely tongues, and then they would be uh, spoken real languages as well. Again, Wayne Grudem acknowledges that the tongues in Acts 2 and perhaps the other passages in Acts were actual languages but he and many Pentecostals and Charismatics point to 1 Corinthians to argue that they don't always have to be. Okay, so this is interesting. So remember, the normal thing is everything in Acts is normative, and that's the same for all the church. Well, Grudem doesn't go there. So he actually says, no, 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 those are languages. But now he's changing, and this is one of the inconsistencies. When you're trying to argue that these gifts continue because it's normative, but then you say it's not the same gift Okay, but he's arguing it's the first Corinthians. So, he's, he, so I guess he would say that was a unique thing in Acts 2, like, like we did. And he'd say that was unique for those being real languages. And they don't always have to be. This is Grudem's argument. He points to 1 Corinthians 13.1 that says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And he says, see, so um, they could be. Tongues of angels, whatever those are, instead of tongues of men or languages. So he would give the argument that it could be something else. Um, So here's what he says. In Acts 2, this happened to be speech in known human languages that had not been learned by the speakers. Whereas in 1 Corinthians uh, 14 in particular, he's talking about the speech may have been in unknown human languages, or in angelic languages, or in some specialized kind of language given by the Holy Spirit to various speakers individually. So see, this is where he's allowing for some kind of gibberish or some kind of sounds that we don't understand. Um, I would disagree. Uh, One problem is that I believe here Paul is writing uh, in exaggeration. He's writing hypothetically, and he's writing in exaggeration. Like You could call it hyperbole. So Robert Thomas writes this, Paul uses himself to illustrate and create a hypothetical case, one that had not and could not become actual. He pictures a situation of personally possessing the gift of tongues to the extent of being able to speak the languages of all men everywhere. He even goes beyond this and conceives of an ability to communicate in celestial languages of angels as well, whatever these languages might be. So he's exaggerating to make a point. He's saying, well, here's the gift. But even if you had this, if this gift was like this super gift that you could do all these unbelievable things that aren't necessarily real, it's still nothing if you don't have love. 
So he's speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating here um, to make a point. Uh, he's not necessarily saying that those things exist. He's just saying, well, if, if you could do that, it would still mean nothing. And if you go to the next verse, these aren't things he has either, right? So you, if you say, well, are you sure he's doing that? Well, look at verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. That's hyperbole. Does Paul, does Paul understand all mysteries and all knowledge? No. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love. So he's talking about these things. If I give away all I have, did he do that? If I deliver my body up to be burned, did he do that? So he's, he's giving hypotheticals here. And, he, and he's using hyperbole to say, well, if, even if you had not just the tongues that were doing, but if you even had this, you, and it had, you didn't have love, it would still be nothing. It would still be nothing. So he's exaggerating to make this point. Um, as uh, Leon Morris points out, his point is that the best speech of earth or heaven, whatever it is, without love is only a noise. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, in fact, takes the tongues of angels there to just mean exp- an exp- to be an expression of eloquence. So if you could speak like angels, if you were so eloquent in your speaking, that's how J. Vernon McGee takes it. Uh, another commentator writes, Paul is not claiming to speak in the tongues of angels, nor in all those developed on earth. He merely asks his readers to take up an imaginative challenge and suppose that he were to try to communicate in these languages yet without affection for his listeners. And one more uh, commentator, verse 1 does not concern itself primarily with the reality of things. It merely states that if such and such were the case, then something would follow. He only implies that if he had at his disposal not only a type of tongues as it is found among men, but also one which might be found among angels, and yet despite all this would lack love, then all those benefits would be of no avail to him. Okay, so that's, that's an iffy passage to point to to claim that there's something else that are not human languages. Um, but most charismatics would also point to 1 Corinthians 14. So that was one passage. 1 Corinthians 14, um, they would read through and make an argument that the tongues in 1 Corinthians are different than those in Acts. Okay, now again, keep in mind, this means what they're really saying is Acts is not normative. So they're actually agreeing with that at this point. Some charismatics respond that the tongues in 1 Corinthians are being spoken to God, while the ones in Acts are spoken to people. That 1 Corinthians is a sign to unbelievers, while Acts was for believers. That an interpreter was needed in Corinth, but not in Acts. And they say the tongues in Acts 2 are actual languages, but the ones in 1 Corinthians are ecstatic, private, devotional speech, which one speaks in an unknown tongue to God personally and privately. For self edification. Yeah. I don't know if you covered this, but do they believe that anybody who has a gift of interpretation would be able to interpret the angelic? That they believe is angelic? I've. Having not been in a charismatic church, but from everything I've seen, I've never seen one who, ha- who does interpretation. And that would be one of our arguments against what they're doing, is if you follow what, if you read through 1 Corinthians and you follow what Paul says to do, it was supposed to be interpreted. But that might be a way for them to get out of it, saying that, well, we can interpret unknown languages, of, of, but not unknown languages of angels. Yeah, they could argue that. They would have, yeah. But they, usually that's not what's happening. I don't know, has anybody gone and seen that happen? Interpretation in the church? Okay. 
Well, at least they're trying to follow. At least they're trying to follow what Paul writes because most of them, the picture I always have seen on the videos, and these might be the extreme cases, is like all the people throwing themselves around on the ground all at once everywhere, and it's just like a big mess throughout the worship center, and they're all making these noises, and nobody's trying to interpret, nobody's doing anything, and they're like writhing around on the floor, and there's there's no no interest in doing that, but. Yeah, we'll see. We'll list that as one of the things that if you are doing those kinds of things and that Paul says, they're supposed to be interpreted. <laughs> so, yeah. And then you have, might have issues of, of, as Henry was saying, new revelation that you might be claiming if you're interpreting it, depending on what you're saying it is. Yeah. I mean, the text makes it clear that they have used the gifts of the church that was given by speaking, let's say, you're in the, uh, in the Spanish church and you're speaking German. Well, that doesn't edify anyone. Yeah. That's why you need to interpret. You know, because they need to interpret the actual language they were given a gift to. Yeah. But not the, how do you interpret someone who's speaking gibberish and then you're making things up? Yeah. You interpret and why would that be necessary today? Right. Where we, you know, we have ways to translate languages. We know each other's languages. We can figure it out. You know, there's ways we can get around it now. We have, yeah. We have ways we can do that. All right, so uh, I'll just give you a couple um, refutations of those claims. Um, so here's, this is kind of a long one from John MacArthur from the book Strange Fire. He notes that in defending nonsensical speech, most charismatics retreat to the book of 1 Corinthians, contending that the gift described in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is categorically different from that of Acts. Once again, this assertion is not permitted by the text. A simple word study effectively makes that point, since both passages utilize the same terminology to describe the miraculous gifts. In Acts, Luke uses laleo to speak in combination with glossa, tongues, four different times. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul uses forms of that same combination 13 times. Other parallels can also be established. In both places, the source of the gift is the same, the Holy Spirit. In both places, the reception of the gift is not limited to the apostles, but also involved lay people in the church. In both places, the gift is described as a speaking gift. In both places, the resulting message can be translated and thereby understood, either by those who already know the language or by someone gifted with the ability to translate. In both places, the gift served as a miraculous sign for unbelieving Jews. In both places, the gift of languages was closely associated with the gift of prophecy. And in both places, unbelievers who did not understand what was being spoken responded with mockery and derision. Given so many parallels, it is exegetically impossible to claim that the phenomenon described in 1 Corinthians was inherently different from that of Acts 2. Since the gift of tongues consisted of authentic foreign languages on the day of Pentecost, the same was true for believers in Corinth. And Robert Thomas adds, there is not the slightest indication that the nature of the gift changed in the intervening quarter century. Furthermore, the book of Acts was written some seven years after 1 Corinthians, indicating that the terminology, even at that late date, was still a reference to foreign languages. Also, if you read through 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul is calling out the Corinthians for errors, their immorality, their selfishness, their disorder, etc., and so we should not be understanding 1 Corinthians 14 to be talking about them uh, using these gifts the right way. Uh, so MacArthur adds, this is from the truth about tongues, the Corinthian church could never have been manifesting a true gift in the spiritual state that they were in. They were worldly, divisive, opinionated, cliquish, and he has this whole list <laughs> of what they were, as you can see from reading through the letter, 
And uh, then he says, how could they be expressing a true gift of the Holy Spirit? They were walking in the flesh. And when you're walking in the flesh, you're not manifesting a true gift in the true power of the Holy Spirit. It can't happen. Paul wrote the first 13 chapters of 1 Corinthians to correct the errors in their assembly. And he wrote chapter 14 because of their selfish pagan use of ecstatic speech that was being justified as the gift of languages given by the Holy Spirit. Apparently, even those who had the true gift had perverted it and were using it to speak in their own private way, as well as in the assembly when unbelievers weren't even present. They used the gift of tongues as a way to lift themselves up to a level of spiritual superiority. So his point is that they're, they're misusing it, and that's what you said, Henry, that they're not edifying anyone, right? When you're speaking and it's not being translated, you're just elevating yourself and getting attention, but you're not actually uh, edifying the body, which is what the point was. And if someone's interpreting, well, then that can happen. And you can see uh, some of these passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So he's saying they're doing this tongue speaking in such a way to build themselves up. Uh, Verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? You will be speaking into the air. Verse 12, since you're, so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That should be your focus. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. 1 Corinthians 14.31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And then verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. That's what he calls for. So the true gift of tongues is the miraculous ability to speak a foreign language which is unknown to the speaker in order that he might communicate the truth of God in the language of someone present. This is not what we see in the ecstatic speech of the charismatic movement. All right, so that's point number three. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah. When you look at First uh, Corinthians 14, 18 and 19, Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. And what he's doing is showing that there's a, su- a superior gift in speaking in tongues, which is to prophesy and to speak the truth. And he's saying that's the more excellent yeah, he mentions on verse three, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their up- upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue. But again, he's talking about the, the way they're speaking in tongues builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church. All right, number four, tongues were a sign of judgment to unbelievers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22 talks about the purpose, one of the purposes, the primary purpose of the gift of tongues is a sign for unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22 
Uh, and the law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Uh, Paul quotes here from Isaiah 28 when he says uh, the law, when he says that it says that in the law it is written. That's from Isaiah 28. Uh, where the speaking of tongues is a sign of, the, of cursing on unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Judah. And then he says, thus tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Uh, we see this connection elsewhere when Moses describes to Israel the blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. In Deuteronomy 28, 49, it says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. And there's another verse we'll skip in the interest of time, Jeremiah 5.15, also talking about that, a nation, judgment coming through nations whose language they do not understand. And so um, here's uh, John MacArthur again explaining, when they speak those languages in the day of Pentecost, every Jew should have known the judgment of God was imminent. And it was. In AD 70, the Romans came in and wiped out Jerusalem, and the sacrificial system, which ceased when the temple was destroyed, has never been restored. Once the destruction of Jerusalem came in AD 70, the whole purpose for the gift of languages ceased. The gift of tongues was never intended to be something for a Christian. The gift of tongues was for a Jew who didn't believe so that he might know God was going to act in judgment. So at least that's, that's the primary reason. I mean, obviously, it was also showing what we were talking about, showing uh, who, was in the, who was in the body of Christ early on. Uh, number five, and this is uh, tongues were a special sign of blessing to the nation. So another, another purpose of, this, of the tongues. Uh, he, so he notes primarily tongues speak as a sign of the curse on Israel. But notice a residual effect of that curse is the blessing that comes to the whole world. You see, as Christ turned away from a rebellious people, he opened his arms to the world. Paul speaks to this issue in Romans 11. And so, um, so it's a sign also, a judgment on the Jews, but also uh, a blessing to the rest of the world. I'll skip that last part, jump to number six. Uh, number six, I think it's the last one, right? Yeah, okay. So we'll wrap up with number six. Tongues were to be interpreted and done in an orderly manner. So he mentioned, uh, Paul mentioned at the end, all things should be done decently and in order in the end of chapter 14. And he does explain what that looks like for tongues. So if we observe what are called tongues today, if they should be uh, following the direction in 1 Corinthians, if that's the passages they're sticking to as the norm, Paul gives instruction in verse 27 of chapter 14. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So only two or three were supposed to speak, and it was supposed to be done in an orderly manner, and it was supposed to be uh, interpreted. That was part of it. So again, the stuff that you see... Um, that's not what, what, was, what Paul's talking about here. So, so we believe it would be, number one, real languages, but number two, it's also supposed to be interpreted, and one at a time, uh, and two or three at the most, not everybody in the worship center rolling around on the floor making sounds. Yeah? So, uh, tongues or unknown languages is a sign of God bringing judgment to Israel. Would 
was affected uh, a church that would invite this um, this speaking in tongues in the church and worship service. Are they is God judging that church as well for allowing this to happen? Or? Because it's it's a, it's a it's a sign of confusion that God brought curse to Israel because of the rebellion. What is that going case in the open church if they allow tongue speaking um, in the congregation? Does that make sense? Well, it would seem like you could make that argument for anything going on wrong in a church. So any false teaching, anything you're doing that's wrong is being allowed, and it is, in a sense, going to result in its own judgment. I mean, you're, you're, you're deceiving everybody and yourself. But, you know, is it a specific sign of judgment? I don't know that I have a Bible passage to say that. <laughs> um, but we also know in Romans 1 that at some point God turns, turns, turns people over to their sin, right? You get turned over to your sin. And, and Pharaoh's heart getting hardened, and we can look at examples like that. So there's a point where God does turn people or nations over, but I don't know that I can say when that is. But in a church that's doing that, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know if I could say that that's a, that's a sign in the same sense, because I, I don't have a passage to back that up. But it's, it's not going to bring blessing to the church. <laughs> so that would I wouldn't, I, again, I'm not sure I would tie that to a particular passage, yeah. All right, um, so the last quote here from John MacArthur, the idea that everyone in the congregation should simultaneously burst into a cacophony of gibberish as frequently occurs in the contemporary charismatic churches is something Paul would never have permitted or attributed to the Holy Spirit. In fact, one of the strongest indictments against the modern charismatic movement is the disorderly, selfish, and chaotic manner in which false glossolalia, the tongues, is practiced. So that's our, that's our conclusion. So finally, in summary, uh, we conclude that not only is the second blessing theology not correct, we should not expect a second blessing, um, but so is the expectation of tongues, whether at a second blessing situation or at salvation. Uh, again, the miraculous sign gifts were given as signs during the establishment of the foundation of the church, through the apostles and prophets, as per Ephesians 2.20. With the foundation being finished, there's no longer a need for those gifts. And so they've ceased. Okay, uh, let me close in prayer. And then if you have any, any other questions, we have a few more minutes. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we do have your word. Uh, we do have uh, the truth, Lord, so that when we, when we question these things, when we have doubts, that we can, we can look into it, that we can study and dig into your word and find the truth. And uh, we thank you for that, Lord, uh, that it does not change, that you do not change. And Lord, uh, that, that uh, we thank you that you have uh, brought us here and opened our eyes to the truth about Christ and prayed that we would just uh, we would be in your word and hungering for the truth in all areas to, uh, to please you, Lord, as we were uh, looking at this morning, how, how to please you, Lord. That should be our goal, not to please men, not to please self, but how we can please you, Lord. And so we thank you and uh, pray, Lord, that you would be exalted this day, that you'd be exalted tonight at our service. And uh, Lord, help us to just live in a way that would honor you in everything that we say and do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.